Hey listeners, Lex on the Decks here. Before you get stuck into this episode of Hot Girls, I wanted to let you know about something else you may be interested in. Though Hot Girls in its podcast format isn't releasing new episodes any longer, if you head over to my Substack, which is lexonthedecks.substack.com, you'll find more interviews and insight on gender minority artists and how to overcome any barriers to entry. You'll also get the opportunity to sign up to my weekly newsletter, Five Good Things. This is an email letter which will land in your inbox on Fridays, sharing five of my favourite cultural or creative discoveries of the week. You'll find all that on lexonthedex.substack.com. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Hot Girls. Hello, and welcome to Hot Girls. This episode, we are looking at the life and library of an artist whose legacy I've only recently started to grasp. Someone who really cared about the music she created, but struggled with some of the baggage that came with her success. Success which saw her get to the top of all charts, both in a group, the Fugees, and as a solo artist. When she released her first solo album, she became the first woman to pick up five Grammy Awards in one night. Adele recently poached the title winning six in one night, and the only person to have won more than six is Michael Jackson, who won eight Grammy Awards in one night. Whoa! Uh, Lauren was also the first hip-hop artist to win Best Album at the Awards, which is really a big gong. Her relatively small catalogue, one solo album, one live album, and two albums of the Fugees, still casts a huge shadow over hip-hop culture and she will forever be known as one of the greatest musicians of our generation. That musician is Miss Lauren Hill. Over the next 20 minutes or so, I will be taking you through the decisions Miss Hill made throughout her life, the things she struggled with, and also where she got her inspiration from. If you can start to get an understanding of the person who created this music and the legacy that she's left behind, and her music that is still so adored and discovered by new audiences all the time, 20 years later, that will be very powerful in your own creative journey. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Hot Girls. Lex of the Deck. We in the mix. It's fire. Keep it going. We on fire. From London for the world. Let's go in. On the 26th of May, 1975, a young lady was born to Valerie Hill and Mal Hill. Valerie was a teacher and Mal was a computer consultant. A job Lauren says she did not understand for a long time. <laughs> Fair. It was a fairly middle-class background, and she had really supportive family base growing up, something which she said gave her this solid foundation of self-assurance and confidence. The love and comfort that she was surrounded by made her feel full from the inside. So when she started her career, she felt able to push herself creatively without the insecurities and challenges that can come from being raised in a more unstable environment. She was born in East Orange, uh, moved to New York, and then moved back to South Orange, which is where she really grew up. It's an area which is only about a 40-minute drive from Manhattan, the centre of New York City, and a place that she says was really diverse. So it was a predominantly black and Jewish area, but really it was just a myriad of different cultures and communities, which I think comes to life in Lawrence so much, both in her music and in her character and the way she presented herself. Like many of the greatest musicians, her work isn't typical of one sound from one area. It's a fusion of so many things, which is what makes it so unique. As a child, she was very academic. The fact her mum was a teacher probably had a role to play, but also she seemed to have this natural competitiveness. I had a love, um, I, I don't know if it was necessarily for academics more than it just was for achieving, period. You know, and if it was academics, if it was sports, if it was music, if it was dance, whatever it was, I, I, you know, I was always 
driven to do a lot in whatever field or, you know, whatever area I was focusing on at the moment. So I, I did well in school. At school, she was pretty much a straight-A student. She also took violin lessons, went to dance class and founded the school's gospel choir. So she was a bit of an overachiever, really. Fun fact, she actually was in the same class as Zach Braff. You know the guy from Scrubs? Yeah, wonder what the rest of their class are up to. In 1988, uh, so age 13, she had her first real shitty stage moment when performing on a TV show called Showtime at the Apollo in the amateur category. Little Lauren got booed while she was on stage for sounding a bit flat. You can find the performance somewhere on the internet and it is very sad. They're really mean to her. And she cried afterwards, as most people would. But obviously that was the kind of thing you have to go through as you're starting out. No one is born magical. You just work and you get better. And Lauren's mum said in an interview that that was a defining moment for Lauren because she asked her, well, you're going to have to go through this. And Lauren looked back at her as if the notion of her not continuing was absurd. And I think then from that point onwards, she was ready to deal with whatever came at her. One of the quotes I often go back to is by a comedian named Patton Oswalt, and it's, my favourite failure is every time I ever ate it on stage as a comedian, because I woke up the next day and the world hadn't ended. It's just something to remember, something I remember, if you ever feel embarrassed or like you fucked up, so is everyone else, and the world carries on and people forget. One thing that distinguished Lauren, even at this early age, was the seriousness in her. Not like she was serious all the time, but she definitely wasn't messing around when she did something. She took whatever she was putting her time into very seriously. She said, I think the work ethic that was established in my family was very important. I'm going to sidestep briefly to talk about the first performative thing Lauren was a professional in and continued alongside her musical career, which was acting. I'm not going to get into it in loads of detail because her music has had a much bigger impact both on her as a person and also the world. What it does reflect was her interest, I guess, in being in front of the camera. She was in a couple of TV series, but her big role was alongside Whoopi Goldberg in Sister Act 2, which was released in 1993 when Lauren was 17 years old. One of her greatest musical inspirations was Bob Marley, and she also worked for a while on a film intended to be about his life in which she would play his wife. Perhaps slightly strange because she had a very long-term relationship with his son. So, yeah, make of that what you will. But back to music. When she was a freshman, which is age 14 to 15 for Brits listening, she was approached about joining a group as someone had heard she could sing a little. That group, over the next few years, would evolve, swap another woman for Wyclef Jean, and enter the Fugees. Before the Fugees were the Fugees, they went by the name Translator Crew because they wanted to rhyme in different languages, which I initially thought lol early creative ideas and then I thought about how global music's become now with the growth particularly in the past few years of reggaeton and Justin Bieber's remix of Despacito XXX Nation song uh wittily named I don't even speak Spanish lol lots of people are doing this now so you know they were ahead of the times if I was to make an observation of Lauren I would say her growth at this stage was a true combination of good fortune and serious focus she got opportunities and she took them very seriously from a young age, much like a Beyonce. No song or role was going to be an accident. She was consciously creating the artist she wanted to be. And she was obsessed with music. She explained in an interview how she used to sleep on the floor in her room until she was about 19. Not because she didn't like her bed, but because her headphones cable wouldn't stretch to where her bed was. And what was she listening to? The influences she calls out were Stevie Wonder, Bob Marley, Marvin Gaye, Gilberto, Jose Feliciano, Donny Hathaway, 
and Gladys Knight and the Pips as well and Shep and the Limelight. So very soulful and also very international. You probably haven't heard a lot of some of those names, um, but they're all from different countries. Some from Brazil, some from the States, yes, but also uh, obviously Bob Marley from Jamaica. So a real mix. And they really were my teachers, my musical teachers. I didn't have you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't go to Juilliard or I wasn't classically cha- trained, but by listening, you know what I mean? I, I grew an appreciation for uh, certain musical philosophies and ideas and concepts. You know, I, I understood what drums and bass and, you know, and all different types of instrumentation were just by virtue of my exposure to this music. So let's talk about the Fugees. The Fugees was a three-piece band formed in school. Their name actually came from the word refugee, which at that time was used a lot as a derogatory term for Haitian Americans. How far we've come. They released their first hip-hop LP, Blunted on Reality, in 1994. It didn't gain huge mainstream attention, but the music industry liked it. Uh, It didn't chart in the US, but it did reach 122 in the UK and 62 in US R&B. So it was the start of something. Then came their second album, The Score. This was released in February 1996. Lauren was only 20 at the time. And fair to say the album did pretty well. That album became one of the biggest hits of 1996 and one of the best-selling hip-hop albums of all time. It included cover versions of old favourites. It wasn't purely original material. The group reinterpreted No Woman, No Cry by Bob Marley and the Wailers and also Killing Me Softly, which was first recorded by Laurie Lieberman in 1971. So I actually thought they were the first people to perform that, but I think theirs is just such an iconic rendition of a song that has been consistently popular over the years. The album also included a reinterpretation of Ready or Not, Here I Come. Ready or not, here I come. That one. In their hit single, Ready or Not, which featured a prominent sample of a song by Enya, um, which is the bit that go the humming bit. Does it go like that? Yeah, it kind of goes like that. They actually tried to pretend initially that they hadn't sampled any, and she was like, that's literally my record, pay me $3 million, <laughs> which they did. So clear your samples, people, unless you think the song's too good and they weren't clear. Maybe I'll do one of these on Enya, because she has had a really undercover impact on hip-hop. The Fugees won two Grammy Awards with a score, Best Rap Album, and Killing Me Softly won Best R&B Vocal Performance by a duo or group. Killing Me Softly and Ready or Not both went to number one in the UK. So, yeah, but I mean, I think like as Brits, we were and still are huge followers of that music. If I'd had it my way, I would have been in the group forever. You know, I enjoyed the group atmosphere. I thought, you know, it's so good to have two guys on stage backing you up. But um, the interesting thing about entertainment is that when you're struggling, everybody goes in with the same goals. You know, but somewhere along the success area, you start to look at everyone around you and go, wait a minute, where are you going? Where are you headed? Because I'm going this way. Wait, what happened? I thought we were all on the, you know. And um, sometimes success can do that. Sometimes it, it really uh, illuminates, you know, creative differences, spiritual differences, you know, um, emotional differences. So everything was going great until it wasn't. And shortly after that album, the group disbanded. They've done a few things together since, including a tour in 2005, but none of them have gone very well because there is not peace within that group. So that group is three people. It's Lauren Hill, Wyclef Sean and Praz Michelle. 
Lauren Hill and Wyclef Jean started dating when they were in the band together. Wyclef then met his wife, got married, but continued sleeping with Lauren. Uh, it definitely appears that she was head over heels in love with him and quite torn apart by that relationship. I can't really imagine quite how destructive that must have been to have felt the intimacy that you would feel with a close creative partner and collaborator who's also your lover and then watch them suddenly love this other person but still kind of keep you hanging on. I, like, that would kill me. In his book, Wyclef Jean said, I was married and Lauren and I were having an affair but she led me to believe that the baby was mine and I couldn't forgive that. Continues on to say, She can no longer be my muse. Our love spell was broken. I guess I'm biased being female, but the idea of someone saying to me, you're my muse, like that level of adoration and then going back to his wife and dropping you, like for someone who was self-confident and really believed in herself, I can imagine that that sort of really destroyed that. I've done a lot of reading about their relationship and I think there's no doubt that uh, that did have a massive impact on Lauren's slow mental deterioration, which I'll go on to take you through a little bit. I guess the flip of that is that when she decided to create her solo album, there was this competitiveness at her core, uh, coupled with a huge amount of emotional energy and confusion and heartbreak, which she did successfully channel into one of the greatest albums of all time. So she suffered, um, but we gained <laughs> in terms of art, it has to be said. She made this decision to create something that would stand the test of time. That would be the greatest expression of her experience as a human and stand up to the records of the people she looked up to, like Bob Marley and Stevie Wonder. In an interview with Rolling Stone, one of her friends commented on the uh, competitive energy she had. And they said, it's more competing just who's better, who's greater. She said to Jean, I'm thinking about working with this producer and that producer. And he said, oh no, I'm producing your whole album. She chewed on that for a minute and then said, nah, I got my own vision. And that's when who Lauren really is started to take form. She was focused on proving her genius to the world. So yeah, it was kind of like she either was going to make this album that was going to be iconic and have that status and be truly great, or she was going to feel like she'd lost. It mattered to her being seen as great. It mattered to her being great. That vision that she had became the miseducation of Lauren Hill. And outside of the Fugees, everything that has everyone putting Lauren on this throne as an, as an artist came from that album. That kind of opening up of her heart and her art and her pain and her lessons. 12 million people bought the album and it established her as one of the great MCs, a rapper as well as a world-class singer, songwriter and producer. She was fairly instantly critically renowned and she was also very, very rich from the album. Songs that the album featured included X Factor and Doo Wop. X Factor, which was recently both used on Cardi B's song, Be Careful, and Drake's song, Nice For What. Uh, so yeah, that looping hook is Lauren Hill. Through that album, she was seen as the first artist to really excel as a singer and excel as a rapper, and truly be one of the best at both. She was the first person to do that. Like Drake recently said in an interview that he was the first person to do that, or he or he kind of sees that he was one someone who who's done it. I think fair, Drake definitely has done it well recently, but no one considers Drake an exceptional singer in the way that they do consider Lauren Hill an exceptional singer. Um, another person who I would call out and say is doing this now is Tiana Taylor, and I think that's why everyone needs to... I don't know. I know she's very well respected, but I think she needs a little bit. She needs almost a greater throne because she is she is talent in the way in the level of Lauren, I, I believe. Unfortunately, after this album, Lauren's music and spotlight diminished as she struggled personally. So another quote from the uh, Rolling Stones piece on Lauren. 
And this was from a friend. And obviously, you never know, you know, like a friend of the source. But it does seem to ring fairly true. They said, I think Lauren grew to despise who Lauren Hill was. Not that she despised herself as a human being, but she despised the manufactured international superstar magazine cover girl who wasn't able to go out the house looking a little tattered on a given day. Because Lauren is such a perfectionist, she always sought to give the fans what they wanted. So a simple run to the grocery store had to have the right heels and jeans. Artists are a lot more calculating than public sometimes know. It don't happen by accident that the jeans fall the right way, the hat is cocked to the side, just so. All of that stuff is thought about. And Lauren put a lot of pressure on herself after all that success. And then one day she just said, fuck it. So... I guess it wasn't just the music that she felt pressure or the competitiveness or the emotional side of things. It was also just on a physical level, like having to look a certain way, having to be this in this constant presentation. And when internally she didn't feel that way, she didn't feel like this perfect, cool human being. Those two worlds, her internal and her expectation of her external was just a total collision. And as she started to pull back, you really get the sense that she was just a bit lost emotionally, which makes so much sense given all she experienced in such a short space of time, like early 20s, but even younger. She became very religious, I think, in a move to find some comfort and stability. And then in 2001, she recorded uh, MTV Unplugged 2.0, which was the next album, but very few people bought it. And when she recorded it, she was continuously breaking down and her voice is so raw but too raw, it has to be said. She just doesn't have the control that she had previously. A quote from Lauren is, wherever I go, low or high, I have to represent the truth. And I think the truth of her life at that point was was being broken and being emotionally distressed, which is a tough thing to go through as a person. But in music, you, you I don't know, there's a, there's a composure that you respond to more easily as an audience, I think. So that was 2001, obviously quite a long time ago now. Between then and now, I think Lauren has done a lot of internal work and soul searching. She's had five children and she's coming forward to her art and performance as this much older and wiser individual. She's done work in that period of time, but I really think that it's been kind of intermittent and the Fugees have done tours that just haven't gone very well. So her album as it was then and the person that she's starting to be again right now, she's kind of stepping back into into the spotlight, but into a musician's world rather than into a celebrity world, is the Lauren that supersedes other musicians and other people. She is a legend and will always be respected for what she created. She also has a beauty and a wisdom that should be listened to. I'm going to leave you with a quote from her before you leave me and go and listen to her music. It's used in Tiana Taylor's new song, uh, and it should be a comfort and have a poignancy for everyone, particularly in the world we live in today of constant searching for external validation. Just remember this and find comfort in it. Above all, you keep your clarity, you keep your focus, you keep your sense of love, and you keep your sense of purpose. Your value is internal. Thank you for listening, everyone. Don't forget to share and rate, and God bless. What up, Lex?